This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, the best bits of today's show from Monday, the 22nd of January. Going to kick off with new figures about growth in Dubai. We've got Katija Hack of Emirates MBD. Then big focus on real estate. Richard Waned of Better Homes, his predictions for 2024. Hint, he says the market will be strong, but maybe not quite as blockbuster as 2023. What else can I tell you? The Dubai Mercantile Exchange has new part owners, the Saudi Tadawal. And what they've done is drop the word Dubai from the name. It's now the Gulf Mercantile Exchange. The chief commercial officer is Russell Robertson. He's been talking brandy through the details of that deal. And finally, talking shopping, the economics of shopping mall, Azizi in Dubai wants to build the world's second tallest tower and it wants to put a so-called vertical shopping mall in it, one with multiple floors. But does anybody really want to shop on the 6th or 7th or 8th floor of a mall? David McAdam is the CEO of the Middle East Council of Shopping Centres. Who better to answer that question? All of that to come. First up, though, those economic numbers. Let's look at some of our top business stories this morning. And one of them is about the economy of Dubai, because we've had quarterly GDP numbers released over the weekend. Katija Hack, understandably, has been crunching the numbers. She's the chief economist of the biggest bank in Dubai, Emirates MBD. It's her job. And this is what she had to say. Dubai's GDP growth slowed to 3.3% in the first nine months of 2023, from 4.5% in January through September 2022. Now, some of the slowdown was due to the very high base um, because we had a rebound from the pandemic in 2022, and we see this particularly in hospitality. So hotel and restaurants uh, GDP grew 11.1% in the first three quarters of 2023. But that compares with almost 29% growth in the same period uh, the previous year. Similarly, transport and storage grew 11% through September last year, even after growing 28% in 2022. We have seen some sectors gain momentum last year, including real estate services, construction, information and communication, and also financial services. We do expect growth in the cyclical sectors like tourism to slow further in 2024, as volumes normalise after the pandemic rebound we've seen over the last couple of years. But overall, we think Dubai's economy will continue to attract investment and talent, and we think a similar growth rate can be achieved in 2024 to what we've seen uh, in 2023, which is roughly 35 to 4% growth. So that's one of the big local economic stories. One of our big international economic stories is about interest rates. Uh, The story over the weekend was that traders have pared back their bets on an interest rate cut in March after Fed officials pledged to keep fighting inflation. So the chance of a March cut is now down below 50%, about 46% right now. It was above 80% at the start of the year. And that's not that long ago. So really paring back those bets on interest rate cuts. And that's because of the rhetoric that we've had from some Fed officials. I was watching one interview over the weekend. I don't often watch Fox Business Channel, but I did this weekend. On your holiday. On my holidays, because Mary Daly was speaking. Now, she's the head of the Fed in San Francisco. She's a voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee this year. It's a bit of a rotation. So she's one of the people who will make that decision in March. And as you can hear from what she had to say to Fox Business, 
very much the mantra from her is not about cutting interest rates. It's about fighting inflation. The, we don't have inflation back down to 2%. Everyone knows that. That's not price stability. We are fully committed to restoring price stability and doing it, of course, as gently as we can. But we have a lot of work left to do. We are not there yet, and it's far too early to declare victory. Yeah, not the message I wanted to hear because I've, I'm, a, I'm a dove on inflation and interest rates. So I thought maybe I just didn't hear her right. Maybe, maybe there's some crumb of comfort for doves like me who want a rate cut in March. Nope. While I think it's appropriate for us to look forward and ask when would policy adjustments be necessary so we don't put a stranglehold on the economy, it's really premature to think that that's around the corner. Actually, she's definitively in the Brandy Scott camp, not the Richard Dean camp, because you've always been, or the last two or three years, been more concerned about inflation than I have. I think that's fair to say, is it? Yeah, well, I didn't think it was temporary, which was the original line, wasn't it, that has now sort of been consigned to the annals of history. We've got data coming out. Uh, from the US this week. We've got some personal consumption data, but we've also got Q4 GDP data. That's coming out on Thursday. The Fed has said time and time again, we're going off the numbers. Um, So that might give us a little bit more of a clue when it comes to interest rate cuts this year. But as you have heard, if you've been listening to us for the last 20 minutes um, from Richard Wayne, this real estate market in particular doesn't seem to care what's happening to interest rates. Our real estate market doesn't seem to care, nor does the US stock market. Yeah, record highs on Wall Street on Friday. The S&P 500 gaining by 1.2%. Tech stocks leading the charge. NVIDIA was up by 4% on Friday. It's up 20% so far this year. And last year it was up nearly 200%. Did you buy stocks of NVIDIA this time last year? No, I did not. I did not either. Yaboo sucks. Um, Anyway, for those that did, they've made a pretty penny or a pretty cent. Um, So we've asked uh, Katija Hack what's going to happen to these markets that are at record highs, the Dubai real estate market and, of course, the uh, US stock market. Hitting record highs despite high interest rates, what's going to happen when the Fed eventually does, and it eventually will, cut interest rates? Will that be more fuel to the fire? U.S. equities reached a new record high at the end of last week, driven by technology and AI stocks mainly. The market is pricing strong growth in earnings for these tech companies, but expectations of aggressive easing by the Fed is also fueling the rally. Currently, the market is pricing a full one and a quarter percentage point rate cut by the Fed by the end of this year, which we think is too much. Fed officials have been pushing back against market expectations, so if there is a re pricing in terms of what the market expects from the Fed, this could potentially be negative for stocks in the short term. So we're also going to be looking at how those companies are performing this week. It is earnings season in the United States. I think Procter & Gamble, one of the big companies releasing this week. Tech stocks is a a week or two away yet, but earnings season has begun here in the Gulf, Brandy. Yeah, it has indeed. Al Marai, we used to call them the dairy giant. We need to stop uh, because they are also the juice giant. giant. They are also the chicken uh, giant, uh, they do a croissant or two as well. 4% is the rise that they have seen in their net profit for Q4. Um, they say that they have sold more stuff, they've got more revenues, they've seen expansion across the region. Um, 
they also say that the commodity costs, so the input prices for them of the, the stuff they make stuff out of, have stabilised a little bit. Um, what's been higher? Well, we mentioned interest rates earlier. Funding costs. Is that right? Despite higher funding costs, uh, net profit increased by 4%. Earnings season continues this week. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Stealth wealth be damned. Big, shiny logos. That's what we love, particularly in real estate, which is what we turn our attention to now. Richard Wayne is the Group Managing Director of Better Homes, and he's with us in the studio. Morning, Richard. Good morning, Richard. Your latest report for 2020. 2023 is out. We'll get on to 2024 shortly. But first of all, the year that was confirming what I guess we already knew, in your words, it was a stellar year, all time high for transactions. Yeah, correct. I think this has probably been fairly uh, well accepted in the marketplace. Last year was very, very busy. Uh, Transactions in the residential market, about 120,000, which is about 38% up from the previous year, which, you know, itself was a record in terms of transaction numbers. So it's very, very busy in Dubai real estate. 410 billion dirhams worth of deals Mm -hmm. done last year across Dubai. So not only the volume of transactions up, but bigger deals as well. You'd expect that with sale prices rising, almost doubling the value of transactions. I mean, that's... You've been in the real estate business for 20, 30 years in various countries now. (laughs) That doesn't happen, Richard. Doubling from an already record year, not from a low base. Yeah, look, I think there's two things. One, there is the volume of transactions that happened, which, as I say, was nearly 40% up. But then it's both the size of the deals, so the size of the actual properties being sold is increasing, um, and then the value of the rest. So the value of the the general market is also up about 20% last year. So prices increased in the sales market about 20% as well. So you combine it all together, and, uh, yeah, the volume the value of transactions was nearly double. Right. Let's think about who is buying in 2024. Let's have a listen very briefly to Hussein Sajwani of Demand mm-hmm. Properties. He was speaking a couple of days ago in, or a few days ago, in Davos about the Dubai real estate market, chatting with the guys at CNBC. Have a listen to this. This is what he had to say about nationalities. India, China, uh, Europe, uh, you know, Russia has slowed down. But other countries are coming in a strong, especially Chinese coming back. Is that what you're seeing? Russia slowing down a little bit is what Hussein Sajrani had to say. Uh, but China coming back quite strongly. Yeah. So look, we saw um, last couple of years very, very busy with with Russian investors. That slowed down a little bit through the second half of last year with the the weakness in the ruble, um, and we saw a lot of Russians actually selling properties in the last part of the year. But you know. The Russians were never the major part of the market. Our biggest buyers have always been uh, Indian nationalities and then Brits. Russians for us were coming third last year. And we've seen lots and lots of different nationalities taking their place, including the the Chinese investors. In really sort of in the last quarter, we started seeing Chinese uh, numbers coming back in some volume. So what about 2024? Mr. Sajwani thinks it will cool down a bit. He says we might see 5 to 10% growth this year, but he doesn't expect a repeat of 2023. What are we, 21 days in? What are you seeing? Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mirror him, actually. I've, I've said between 5 and 8% uh, in terms of price growth. In terms of transactions, I think we'll be there or thereabouts. There's lots of new launches coming into the market, but prices have got to a point where there's a little bit less heat 
around around buying. Um, but I, I, the, there's there's still plenty of interest in the market. The first couple of weeks of the year have started just as the last few weeks finished last year. So if we then run that ahead, I think we'll have a very similar year as we had last year. But, uh, but I don't think we'll see the same increase in prices that we saw last year. A, a lot of people have for year for the last few years been predicting the end of the Dubai real yeah. estate boom, myself included. About 18 months ago, I thought, well, rising interest rates, that's going to be the thing to kibosh the boom. Yeah, that, I mean, didn't, that, that didn't happen. And now we think interest rates, well, the next move is going crossed. to be down, isn't it? Well, look, I mean, we've had headwinds. We've had the strong dollar. We've had higher interest rates. And the market's just blown through those. And I really think that's a, a story of population and the success of Dubai over the last couple of years and the momentum Dubai's had. Now, I think that momentum and success is going to continue. So I think demand will continue. We've got a little bit more supply coming to the market. And it's that supply that will probably just take the heat out of the increase in prices that we've seen last year. And it's the supply increase that I think will be why we get prices more at a reasonable level around 5 to 8% this year. I was looking for some doom and gloom about the Dubai real estate market. There's not a lot of it out there, but there's some. <laughs> Go on. Um, an Arabian Gulf Business Insight had a headline last year. Could the Dubai property market meet its nemesis in 2024? Standard & Poor's, S&P, say they expect a cyclical reversal this year. Nothing major. Uh, we don't expect a profound market disruption, but we do expect a cyclical reversal. Then you have to go to the YouTubers to get some proper uh, doom and gloom and social media. At Alex Gurusev says, the Dubai property market crash has already started. But he's got 7,000 followers on YouTube. I'm not sure we can take him as, as, as gospel. Well, he's got a few more thousand than I have. But look, I, it certainly hasn't started. I think there is, um, you know, there's a little bit of a normalization happening in the market, which is great. But other key things in the market. So last year, we saw a record uh, percentage in bet terms of the number of end users buying, for example. It's up to 44%. That's up from 29% three or four years ago. The reason why that's important is the more end users we have, the more homeowners we have in the market, the more stable a market is long term. Because if prices do start to, to go, it's unlike investors who can just liquidate and move away, homeowners tend to stick and hold. And that gives market stability. That gives it a bit of a you know natural handbrake should anything happen. But I really think you've got to look ahead maybe two or three years when there's a lot more supply coming to the market for anything that could be material to impact the uh, the uh, market conditions at the moment. Finally, Richard, are we still cheap? You heard me banging on I about did. Paris hotel room rates. I was there this weekend per square metre because the hotel rooms are so small. They're very, very high. Where do we stand? You've crunched the numbers. Prices per square foot of real estate, Dubai against Paris and also London. Yeah, Where was, do we stand? I, I was furiously Googling in the green room, so I've got a few numbers for us. So London house prices last year, price per square foot, central London, £691. That's about 4,650 uh, dirhams. Paris, $1,133, so about 4,161 Dirhams, the UAE is about 1,300 to 400. So we are just under four times cheaper on a price per square foot basis. Good to know. Richard Wayne from Better Homes. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for getting up early to speak Thanks to us today, me. Group Managing Director Richard. Thank you very much indeed for your time and also for your Chief Executive. Thanks, Rich. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are going to look in a little bit more depth now at one of the big stories of the last couple of days, and that is the Tadawal Group, and that is the Saudi stock exchange owner and operator, buying nearly a third of the Dubai Mercantile Exchange. Very pleased to be joined by the DME Chief Commercial Officer, Russell Robertson. Russell, good morning. It's nice to speak to you. Hi, good morning from Singapore. 
Good morning. So how long has this deal been in the works? Uh, we've been working with the Saudi Tadawal Group for some time. Um, from initial conversations, maybe 10 months, I would guess. But there's been many interests from different parties over the years. The Dubai Mercantile Exchange is a very uh, interesting and strategic opportunity in the so, Gulf. So why does the Tadawal want to own a third of the DME? Our flagship contract uh, is based on uh, oil, so the DME Amman Futures contract. It's um, been growing over the years and has become the benchmark oil price for the region with most of the Middle East national oil companies using DME price on a daily basis. That's obviously very relevant for the Saudi Tadawal group in itself, but uh, it sees us as a opportunity to build and grow the GTC region into other commodity markets based on the history that we have and how we've developed the contract that we have today. Why do you think they didn't just build their own exchange? They've got a bit of building going on at the moment. <laughs> yeah, uh, good question. Um, there's a lot of expense and time that goes into building an exchange. Uh, everything from uh, the regulatory frameworks to building the, the operational side of an exchange. And then for futures, we have a concept called clearing. So having a clearinghouse connection as well uh, would take a long time for them to do. DMEs are a ready-made vehicle and something that they can use to, to develop and grow. And there's not going to be a Saudi Arabian crude oil contract on the exchange. Why not? Uh, no, the, the, the Saudi government uh, have their own pricing mechanisms uh, and they, they greatly believe that um, having their own pricing mechanism away from the market uh, found, the market found price, the price discovery mechanism that we have would create conflicts of interest. So therefore, uh, they will keep that separate in the near future. Okay, so they're going to keep pricing their own oil. What benefit then is the, the Saudi input to the DME? Why have you chosen these guys over the other offers you say you've got? Sure. So, um, I mean, the, the Saudis particularly, we all hear about Project Neom and, and the growth of commodity markets. Uh, the GCC does actually lack behind a little bit of other regions when it comes to uh, derivative trading, particularly in commodity markets. Although it's obviously the number one exporter of oil in the world, uh, there are a number of other uh, minerals and, and metals uh, and agricultural products for that matter that could be developed and, and create a much more relevant space for these products and their pricing in the region. Speaking of pricing, how much is this deal worth? Uh, so so the, the Saddle Group has taken 32.6%, uh, which is close to $30 million. And the headquarters or the exchange itself is going to stay here in the, the, uh, the DIFC in Dubai. Is that permanent? Yeah. Yeah, we're in Gate Village 10 and happy to stay there for the time being. Um, we, we'll probably open an office in Riyadh at some point, uh, but the headquarters will be staying in the DIFC like we have been since 2007. Um, when you say it could open an office in, in Riyadh, what do you mean by office? What could that look like? So we'll probably have some salespeople there. Um, we'll look to spread our message and our products into further GTC regions. Uh, although we are based in Dubai, we are an international exchange, uh, hence why I'm in Singapore. Uh, a lot of uh, Middle East oil, as you guys probably know, is, is exported to Asia. So trading does take place in many areas. Um, internationally, uh, we have more than 60 clients uh, trading our market every day across many different regions. So having a, a presence in Saudi Saudi region would allow us to push our message more around regional aspects rather than to the bigger international players that we see in the energy markets today. How 
regional could this get? It's about to become the Gulf Mercantile Exchange. Oman already um, shareholder, uh, the UAE, obviously, and now Saudi. Are there talks with other Gulf states about taking stakes? Uh, not at the moment. What's the advantage of being a Gulf exchange? Why are you rebranding? So, uh, obviously, DME is historically known as the Dubai Mercantile Exchange and, and the Gulf Mercantile Exchange and the branding will, will help us to show our, our desire to expand in the region and the GTC. Uh, we're very much known as an oil exchange at the moment. Uh, if you speak to most international energy companies, they know the DME as the DME Oman Futures contract. So part of the rebranding is more to do with uh, a new identity as we move out into energy metals and agricultural markets, but commodities in general. Okay. And anything that we find that's going to help uh, the Saudi government and the Saudi Tadal group uh, price their exports. But we hope to do that with other GTC nations as well. Okay. So just, what, just like we do with oil today. So what could we be talking? Which nations and what kind of products? Uh, we'll be looking at certainly uh, probably wheat, uh, anything that goes into the sustainable energy space, uh, hydrogen potentially. Um, we could be looking at metals across the base and 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 into the pressure side. So, so there's a number of different opportunities there, especially as the energy transition starts taking place. We can start to look for new ways of how the landscape is going to get built and we can grow from there. And who are you talking to about that? Uh, so we only announced last week, so uh, some of those discussions are still yet to happen, but uh, on an official basis anyway. So it's more news for you to find out later. Okay, well, last question. What's going to happen to the volumes of the contracts that are traded as a result of this deal? Uh, we do hope to see them grow again. We've had another uh, good year in DME this year. So uh, we've had over 800,000 contracts trading now what we call our front month, the delivery contract, uh, which is 20% up on the previous year. Uh, and we've also delivered 210 million barrels of oil through the exchange in 2023 alone. So that saw some milestones of our 20 millionth contract in 2007. Uh, and this month we will deliver our 3 billionth barrel of oil uh, onto a boat in Amman uh, via the D DME exchange mechanism. So very proud of that and uh, a long history in the DIFC. And uh, we hope to continue building that out into, across the GTC nation. Russell Robertson is the Chief Commercial Officer of the DME. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we're talking the economics of shopping. if we go shopping in a vertical mall because that's what Azizi the developer wants to build in Dubai just to recap last week we had plans from Azizi to build the world's second tallest tower in Dubai which will include the usual mixed-use real estate including a shopping mall but this is going to be a vertical mall and I saw that and thought, yeah, vertical malls just don't work. I'm not convinced. Let's settle the argument now. Delighted to be joined on the line by the veteran retailer and shopping mall operator, David McAdam, who is the CEO of the Middle East Council of Shopping Centres and Retailers. David, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Richard. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks very much indeed. I'm going to get your take on this in a second. But first of all, uh, let me put it to you, sir. My, my case for the prosecution that vertical malls do not work, and that was my hunch, and I've been doing a bit of homework to 
to try and basically confirmation bias to prove that I was right. Here's what I found, David. The Journal of Retail and Leisure Property in a study of Asian shopping malls found that shoppers are generally reluctant to climb to upper floors. One of the big challenges of vertical malls, which have been popular in Hong Kong and Japan, is to encourage shoppers to go upstairs. It becomes one of the most important challenges. In Philadelphia, in North America, your stomping ground. Uh, the retail association there say that second floor retail outlets are very difficult to sell unless it is absolutely necessary for shoppers to go there. I could continue, but that's my thesis. Vertical malls just don't work. What's your expert opinion? Well, Richard, I'd say check, check, check. I think that you've uh, pretty well uh, hit it on the head what the issues are with that. The ground level is always very successful, but if it's a very small floor plate, then it doesn't really make much difference because you don't have very many retailers on that ground floor. I think the other issue with vertical malls has been the floor to ceiling separation, which is it's very important in shopping centers to have a high ceiling height, clear ceiling height inside the shopping environment. And uh, so if you can get five to seven meters, for example, between each floor, then I think you'd have a better chance of having a great successful shopping center. But when you're in a high-rise tower, to get a five to seven meter uh, separation between the floors all the way up in the four or five floors that you're going to do it, I think is going to be a challenge. Um, the other, the other uh, bigger challenge I see is, is that I believe this is going to be a, a seven-star type uh, event, this, uh, this tower. And um, you would want to have some luxury brands to go along with that. And I'm unsure whether or not Dubai can uh, accommodate another uh, uh, Louis Vuitton, um, Dior, Chanel, or whatever, because you've already got a number of them uh, in Dubai. And you need to have that exclusivity with those brands to ensure that they remain exclusive. So we'll see how they plan on putting this together. But I, I think it's a brave attempt at uh, having a vertical shopping center in even a, a tallest building like your second tallest building like this, because it's a challenge. Looking at what the research says, it suggests that upper floors can work, but it tends to be for, for larger items that need a bigger floor plate and slightly cheaper rents or sometimes significantly cheaper rents. Electrical appliance shops fridges and washing machines are big furniture outlets and also restaurants as well is that the case here in the middle east in your experience and we mentioned earlier on that you've worked for some of the the big malls here in dubai and elsewhere festival city dubai mall and so on yes of course that's the biggest issue but when you're getting large scale furniture items or heavy items like um washing machines or refrigerators, you need to have a separate sort of access that you need for the elevators to come up and down to supply that, even to show the display area. So it, it's a difficulty. I would suggest perhaps better medical, perhaps education, perhaps something that would do more with, um, uh, I don't know, an office type environment that's not really office, but a co-working type thing, that you have lower rent, but you also have an area where you have a, 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 some kind of an interesting uh, element to add to the retail that's beyond that. Uh, and I'm not sure in this building what I was read, what I have been reading about it, that this is going to be for white goods, for instance, or for, for other things that are probably less glamorous. Uh, but we'll see.
I'm looking forward to seeing what we uh, we we can find. And, and this is an interesting one. Talking about, and, and you mentioned shopping malls, or retail facilities, starting to have things like clinics, starting to have schools, and we've seen it here in Dubai. But that tends to be repurposing of old malls. Wafi, for example, with the visa processing that you've got there, very popular. Uh, City Walk, we've got a big Canadian university in City Walk now. It used to be a, a, a French a department store. Bergerman, I know you've spoken about this before, the way that that, that mall has, has embraced healthcare tenants as well. But this does tend to be older malls being reinventing themselves, does it not? It does. You're right. Um, I, I would suggest that the issue that we're facing with this is it's going to be uh, breaking new ground. This is going to be an interesting way for Dubai to showcase to the world how you can actually do something like this uh, with a, a multi-level vertical mall in a, a very tall building. It'll be an interesting exercise to see how it all comes together. It's not been a successful um, template for them to follow on. Finally, David, just while you're here, what are you hearing from your contacts in the industry about the first three weeks of 2024? What are we? The, the 22nd of January so far. I know you've got a lot of contacts here in the UAE, yeah, in sure. Saudi Arabia mm. as well. But what's the mood music like? Good, bad, indifferent? No, good. It's very good. As a matter of fact, uh, as the tourism, particularly in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for, for many ways as well, but uh, the UAE, I'd say overall for the tourism component that is uh, evident in the UAE, very, very strong. So the retailers are very happy. I'd say in some other corners of the world, if I'm looking at uh, France, uh, for instance, Riyadh and other uh, cities in the GCC, um, mixed. And I would say it's not tourism driven as much so that it's a little slower. People are feeling um, a little bit uh, uneasy with circumstances in the, in that GCC community uh, or Middle East overall, I should say. Um, so that there has been a little bit of a hold back in terms of the purchasing of the retail. But overall, I'd say not good, not bad, but um, okay. Finally, 30, as she goes. 30 seconds on Turkey. Very important market for the Middle East. It's where you spend an awful lot of your time. Increasingly warm ties between Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Turkey. They can blow hot and cold. Seems to be hot at the moment. What, what are you seeing? 30 seconds, David. No, I see great things uh, between the GCC particularly and, uh, and Turkey. I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of uh, overlap between the two uh, retail businesses. Uh, and the, the, there are so many Turkish retailers who would like to explore the opportunities in the GCC. And, and I know that I've been helpful on finding a number of great solutions for these people. Um, but on the other side of it, it, it runs hot and cold. And, and I think that the retailers and the other investors are always quite careful about how they approach it. David, we're going to have to leave it there. Appreciate your time. David McAdam there, Middle East Council of Shopping Centres and Retailers, joining us live from Turkey. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.